On this Say Like It Is episode, we keep it as real as it gets. We take you through a road less traveled and dive into the warrior's lifestyle with the rawness of a special forces operator. Our special guest today is 20-year Army Special Forces veteran, Jay Paisley. This guy's a tactical firearms instructor, an entrepreneur, and a modern-day warrior. We dive deep into Jay's mindset and way of life. This guy's a straight shooter and speaks right from the heart. We're going to talk about violence of action, self-defense, turning your switch on and off, immersing yourself in your training, discipline, investing in yourself, and of course, what it takes to make a warrior. This is a must-listen-to episode. Stand by. Welcome back to the Man of War. My name is Rafa Conde. Of course, like always, I am your host, a man on a mission here to transform you into a modern day warrior. All right, listen, we have less than 40 days left to the Conclave of Warriors downtown Miami. I am so stoked. This is going to be an absolutely phenomenal event, the most powerful event of the year bar none. I'm telling you straight up. Listen, if you do not have your tickets as of yet, you must go to conclaveofwarriors.com. That's conclaveofwarriors.com. Grab your tickets before they sell out. More importantly, right now, we still have general admission seating. Our VIP and inner circle seating is very, very limited. We only have a few tickets available for that. So get on, turn that switch on, and we're going to talk about that today. Turn that switch on and start investing in yourself, this is going to be an event that you will never forget. You will be changed forever, I guarantee you, when you walk out of this two-day immersive experience. And I want to give a quick shout out to those that have left us a review on iTunes. All right. Thank you very, very much. It means so much to us. All we ask from you, if you listen to this, and I know you're getting tremendous amount of valuable content from this podcast. I mean, we have a hundred, what is this, 108th episode? I've brought you 108 episodes, okay? of kick-ass content done with love because I love you guys and you girls also that listen to this podcast and you, because of you, have made this podcast a top podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and, and because of you, all right, this motivates me to be here every single Tuesday and Friday. And I'm not gonna lie, sometimes it is tough, but I'm still here, I'm still here. All right, so that's the bottom line, man. I bring it to you. All I ask from you is that you leave us a review. Leave the podcast a review on iTunes so we can continue trending higher on these iTunes charts that have their own algorithms, but this is the way that it goes, and that's the way of the land. All right, my brothers, check this out. Man of War with two R's on Instagram. Give me a follow. I've been building that account here now for almost about a year, and we're doing very well. I appreciate your DMs, your emails that you send me. Like I said, that just keeps me driving day in and day out. And certainly it I realized, hey, you know what? This podcast is truly, you know, touching people, touching people all over the world. And I'm super, super stoked, no doubt about it. And you guys know that we're all about keeping things real here. I mean, this is not just about motivating and saying that you should love yourself and love others and all uppity, uppity. And, you know, bottom line is there are many podcasts out there like that. There are many very, very popular people out there that that's their claim to fame, you know, all about, you know, inspiring from the heart and the soul and soul and the food, what is it, food for the soul. All right. This is not what this podcast is about. We draw it out real, we draw it out raw, and sometimes you're not gonna like what we say, but I gotta tell you that this is the warrior's way. All right, my brothers, turn this podcast up. You're going to love today's episode. Very, very powerful nuggets of wisdom here. Very powerful message across the board. All right, let's get right into it. Jay Paisley, welcome to the Man of War podcast, my brother. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
All right, man, listen, we've been talking here before the podcast, before we started recording. You got some great stuff on in store for us. I mean, you were a combat medic. I mean, you are all about that tactical atmosphere. So we're going to dive deep into who you are. Could you introduce yourself for our audience, please? Yeah, my name is Jay Paisley. I'm the CEO of Fusion Tactical. Uh, I've been out of the Army for about five years, but prior to retiring, I was a Special Forces medic in 5th Group and uh, the Tier 1 unit at Fort Bragg. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, one of the things that I was asking you before was, hey, listen, when you got out of the military, I mean, what was your goal? And you told me something pretty cool. You want to tell me about that? Yeah, when I first got out of the Army, um, my plan was to walk away and leave all this stuff behind me basically forever. I mean, that's, that's the typical burnout behavior you would expect, you know, on somebody at the end of their career. But, yeah, I actually went to school for about a semester to be a history teacher, or, or a teacher. Um, and I, I finished a semester, but figured out pretty early on that at this point in my life, college was more or less a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So I moved back home to Atlanta. And uh, while I was kind of trying kind of trying to figure out how things were going to work, I, I started doing some training and some classes to pull in some extra dollars on the side. And I just kind of developed into crisis application group, uh, which I, I passed pass the torch on i no longer own or or, or or run now of course i dedicate my time to fusion tactical but that's what i've been doing for the last four years you know running classes training the civilian training the civilian populace how long were you in the uh, military 20 years i mean <clears throat> I, I could have stayed in longer but i had a nice uh, mathematically functional medical retirement option placed in front of me. So I took it. <laughs> <laughs> I got it, man. So, you know, what I notice sometimes is, uh, the transition over from the military life to the, over to the civilian side, you know, it, it can be a little bit difficult, you know, especially when we're talking about, you know, trying to own a business and, and going out there and, and producing contacts and all that good stuff. But there's a, a lot of good organizations nowadays that are really helping that transition, you know, veterans coming out of the military. Yeah, there's a lot of transitional services and there's a lot of private firms uh, that are veteran managed uh, that are helping the transition. Um, you know, I went through the same transitional stressors that everybody else went through, you know, lost that sense of purpose, lost that sense of identity, lost that sense of community kind of overnight. And then I found myself out in the civilian world trying to chart a new course. Yep. Yep. You know, know. we all go through it. So let's go back. All right. To when you were growing up, where were you born? I was born in Tampa, but I'm a Navy brat. I got you. I'm actually from a small town just north of Tampa called Brooksville. There's not much there. Um, my my dad, you know, he, he stepped up, got us out of that town. Uh, but basically, he re-enlisted into the Navy in his 30s. And I must say, you know, now that I've retired, I realize how hard of a move that was for him. You don't just up and enlist in your 30s. No. Uh, but he did it. He got us out of there. Um, I'm glad he did it. We moved around all over the country, so it's kind of hard to say where I'm from. Uh, gotcha. I guess based off the right criteria, I'm from Fort Bragg because that's where I lived the longest. Gotcha. So what uh, when you went into the military, it tells you went into the Army, what did you, I mean, was it your goal to get into the Special Forces, to be a Green Beret, to be a combat medic? I mean, what was your goal when you went in there? Uh, honestly, I, I, I didn't do the work when I was in school and I didn't really have a lot of options and, uh, all my decisions. So I I felt like I didn't really have a lot of good career options coming out of high school. So I joined the army, um, with the same old cliche motivation and everybody else uses going to make a man out of me. You know, I'll have a career, all that stuff. And it turned out to be a little bit different than what I expected, but that's what got me in there. I was a D student from Powder Springs, Georgia. So you went into the military and then you tried out for special forces. I mean, what was your mindset then? Um, I didn't initially want to go special forces. Uh, I came down on orders for drill sergeant school and I didn't want to do that. And that was kind of my way out of it at the time. Uh, so I just kind of fell, found myself going to selection. Now I don't get me wrong. I wanted to go. But the, the actual decision to go when I did and how I did 
um, was more a happenstance than planning. But, you know, I was in the big army uh, prior to going special forces. Clinton was president. We were doing the drawdown. There wasn't a lot going on. It was just a miserable time to be a private. So make going SF seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like a way to spice up my career. And then, so I did it. I made it. This is before September 11th. Um, I wanted some real world experience. I wanted to get out there and play for keeps and, you know, as special forces was, it was an avenue for that. I didn't think I'd ever go to war, but you know, September 11th happened as I was finishing up the course. So I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm glad I took this shit seriously because <laughs> I did. I so took it seriously. Let's take you right there. Where were you during 9-11 and, and, and what happened? How, how did it all affect you all in one shot? Well, I mean, you know, generally I don't talk about deployments, uh, largely because they start to become the same deployment stories. But, you know, it was, I was in SEER school. I mean, you know, if we we were skeptical that this was true. Uh, we thought it was part of, uh, you know, a scenario and they were going to hoodwink us. And But we actually had, of all things, we had a recycle in our class, that, you know, from a guy in the class before. He burned his foot. And uh, so we had to retake the course. And he was like, nah, man, they didn't do this in the last class. So oh. we were like, oh, crap, this might be real. Yeah, damn. And then uh, they, they they kind of broke rank and let us listen to And we were still very skeptical, even though the ops guy came out in uniform and straight up told us what was going on. And But we it didn't really sink in that this is really happening until we heard the president's radio his speech. Uh, they let us listen to the president's radio address from, from a truck. Um, they were like, all right, holy crap, this is happening. This is real. We're going to war. That's it. Yeah, this is... Uh, so it was an eye-opening event. Absolutely. It was, uh, for many, many of us, it was a wake-up call, and it was actually, I would say, a good portion of people that I'm f good friends with. I mean, it was life-changing for them. A lot of people became police officers. A lot of people became firemen that went into the military. So there was a lot of transition at that time, no doubt about it. Very powerful time in our country, very powerful time for people that I consider to be warrior-minded individuals that want to go out there, help others, and certainly, you know, lay down the law when it came down to fighting for this country. So let's take it down the road. Now, you got out of the military, and uh, I mean, your goal was to be a teacher. I mean, what was your mindset? Did you, right. Were you just so just kind of either fed up with it or just kind of burnt out with the military? Uh, yeah, by the end of it, I was pretty burnt out. I mean, logically, if you look at how the military handles its, you know, retirement and benefits, uh, you, you tend to retain, in general, a lot of leadership that's burnt out and probably should have got out and is past the prime. But, you know, if they don't make it to 20, they don't, they don't get anything. So luckily, under the new benefit system, I think that's been you know, largely, you know, remedied, but, you know, in my case, I probably should have got, you know, just being honest, I probably should have got out several years before I actually did. Um, so that made for an interesting dynamic. I, I, I simultaneously loved being special ops and somehow wanted to go home and wanted nothing to do with it. So yeah. that by the time I was at the end of my time, yeah, I was pretty done. I was pretty done. I was ready to go home and and start the next chapter of my life, Sans Army. Um, it just, you know, it kind of looks different now. You know, obviously, I'm still involved on the tactical side, but that was my initial plan. That was my motivation, and I love teaching. So, how did you jump into the tactical world? By accident. Um, like I said, when I went to college, it really was a waste of time. They treated uh, a lot of the classes I was taking were just they were jokes. Um, the teacher knew it, the students knew it, we were just knocking it out because they said we had to. And, you know, college looks different when you're a grown up with bills and kids than when you're 18 and 19 years old. You know, I was looking at it like you're wasting my time and money. I'm not learning anything until my second or third year. Why the hell? Do, why, why am I here? Right, right. Why am I here? Yeah. So anyway, long story short, I moved back to Atlanta. Um, I went to high school near Atlanta. So that's kind of my hometown. My family still lives there. I went back there because that's where my support network is and um, just kind of gave classes on the side and that just kind of developed into, uh, it was never my intent, 
to really do this full time, but it just kind of grew that way once it became profitable. And, and then I was, I was committed to it full time. I was back to giving tactical classes and medical classes. and I was, I was back in the mix just uh, now as a civilian. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Good stuff, man. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about now when we talk about combat medicine, how it has evolved here, say, over the last decade or so. I mean, I've seen a, a pretty strong shift over the last decade or so. Let's discuss that. Okay. Well, so TACMED, um, today's TACMED was basically more or less born out of the Black Hawk Down uh, incident about in October of 1993. Uh, leading up until that, the Black Hawk Down battle, uh, most medics largely mirrored civilian EMS because they had to in order to get their clinical expertise. And uh, if you just, you know, you can read the book, but there's plenty of good reports out there that talk, you know, that demonstrate how that EMS medicine, you know, just it simply wasn't up to the task. Um, so out of the aftermath of the Black Hawk Down episode, uh, the modern military trauma model was kind of born based off the, the data collected from that from that battle. Hey, my brothers, just a quick break in the action here. Listen, if you have not secured your seats yet for the Conclave of Warriors downtown Miami, December 1 and 2, you are doing yourself a huge disservice. This is going to be the most powerful event of the year, maybe even of your lifetime. Go to conclaveofwarriors.com, grab your tickets right now, or you can give us a call, 305-907-7324. That's 305-907-7324. See you in Miami. Uh, so for about 10 years, between Black Hawk Down and September 11th, you know, a little less than 10 years, but about 10 years there, you know, military and civilian EMS really parted ways, and we were kind of laughed at it almost, you know, looked at as, as, as bastard children in a clinical setting because we were doing the, the, the military trauma model. So having gone through the medic course in the year 2000, I learned, you know, that military trauma model. We called it MILMED, military med, to distinguish it from, from the paramedic medicine. And we learned instead of MARCH, which is what everybody knows now, we learned life threats ABCs, which is functionally the same thing. Um, you know, it's just not as easy to remember as March. But, uh, you know, the data started coming in from, from SOF on the battlefield after September 11th. Uh, success rates, when you started comparing injury patterns and, and injuries per capita between conventional and SOF forces, uh, it turns out what we were doing was working, and I got the eye of the military, and then it started to disseminate and, and trickle outward from there. Uh, now, of course, as you know, there's tons of veterans that learned the the TCCC trauma model, know that it's effective, trust it, and now that as they get out and transition into the they're bringing that expertise with them when they go to the law enforcement world or go out into the EMS. Um, so there we are. We started from Black Hawk down and just kind of fermented into this nationwide stop the bleed uh, TAC Med model. Now, do you have any courses that teach civilians, you know, specifically, you know, certain elements of that type of medicine where they can apply to themselves, to others uh, during, you know, let's just, and we'll get into active shooters in just a little bit. But um, what I feel here is that even though it's, it's getting more popular now, uh, there's still a pretty big need to train in this tactical medicine element for individuals that you know are concealed carry guys that really are protectors of their families and themselves out there and, and i believe that you must know an element of tactical medicine you know how to work a tourniquet just a basic you know abcs what's your take on that yeah absolutely i mean if you're committed to wielding the power of life and death in the form of a firearms then logic dictates you know, if you examine the data of the type of crisis that people encounter, logic dictates if, you, if you're if you wanting to pick up a gun and, and, and go conceal carry, probably need to learn how to at least stop a bleed, um, especially if you're concealed carry, because chances are, you know, your attacker is not going to realize you're, you're packing heat and you're going to be responding to, functionally, you'll be responding to an attack on you. So there's a good chance you'll already be wounded by the time you start the engagement, in theory. 
So let's dive into active shooters, okay? In situations where, you know, we have mass trauma all the way around and we don't, I mean, at this point, you know, we don't really know injuries. I mean, you got blood all over the place. I mean, let's go, I mean, we can just take Vegas, for example, um, where it was an mm. outdoor situation and it was just a scramble, people running over each other. Give us a little bit, give us a little insight, and we're going to talk more from the civilian side than, than the law enforcement or the military side sure. here, um, because I want to bring it to our, our core of, of listeners are mostly civilian individuals. So I really want to focus on that element, what maybe from, from you seeing it, what people could have done to either help others position themselves better uh, from a tactical medicine aspect? Well, I mean, that's, man, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big scope there, largely because the Las Vegas venue had a lot of unique uh, environmental factors. But, uh, you know, one of the things the Stop the Bleed campaign is trying to do is standardize like bleeder packs and having those type of triage supplies pre-positioned in uh, venues like concerts, stadiums, and so on. It's to pre-position that gear and then to make that gear as intuitive as possible for, for a largely untrained civilian response um i would say having access to, to hemorrhage control equipment immediately uh is a big bonus it's a big it's a big qualifier in terms of the success of, of treating these patients if you look at some of the footage you get some guys who are out there trying to render first aid trying to put you know i don't i don't remember seeing any videos of anybody trying to put tourniquets on, but there were plenty of, you know, what I could obviously tell were veterans and, and the law enforcement guys out kind of out in the mix, putting pressure on wounds. So they, so ultimately what they did, the responders, and this is what we got to get across to the civilians as a whole, is they need to be proactive. You know, you, you, they need to be decisive and decide, hey, something went down. It's time for me to act. And it's indecisiveness that I see as a trainer that largely stalls, you know, quality medical care. And that's why we teach the, uh, the military trauma model is I don't want you to know, you know, all the pathophysiology and the science. I want you to go get into stimulus response mode. If my patient's bleeding, I do this. If my patient can't breathe, I do this. I want your reptilian brain to take over uh, because that's what's going to function in a crisis. And I just need, you know, I tell folks science is in the sequence. I need you to be trained enough to know to go down march. Because oftentimes, you know, when we start talking about austere medicine and military, we, we get the idea that in the Army, the medevac in the hospital is, you know, miles away. And that's the reason we use this. And the truth is, if you're in an event like the Vegas shooting or the Pulse nightclub shooting, it's not the geography that's serving as a barrier between the patient and the follow-on healthcare, but the the sheer magnitude of the scenario, they're overwhelmed. So you have EMS everywhere, you have first responders everywhere, you have reasonable access to a hospital, but there are so many casualties, um, they're not getting timely, you know, uh, timely procedures, you know, life-saving procedures done to 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 the victim. So, and really, in order to counteract that. Uh, we really need to have a more responsive and resiliently trained, you know, civilian, civilian force. So my, my thought is, you know, this is something we can include into, you know, health classes in high school. You know, that's how you get it integrated. Yeah, that, that makes good sense. Uh, nationwide. You know, that, that's kind of how we get it. And the problem is it gets real hard to talk about the medical response to an active shooter because, you know, the first half of the conversation revolves around the Second Amendment and all the issues that come with, you know, the gun control crowd. Um, so it, we don't really see the, the conversation go to the medical side of the house, except, of course, at the professional level where we realize that's something we could easily do, even if we don't solve, you know, the gun issue. And, uh, and let's talk a little bit about school shootings and how, I mean, how do you think at this point in time that schools beef up their security i mean there is uh you know the the very left side saying no weapons in school and then there's the right side saying yes we we got to have weapons um i mean what what's your take on that no, i'm talking i'm talking weapons, about so teachers I, not not uh yeah not yeah kids. yeah you got you, you got a gun up you got a gun up that's it only a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy that's it 
So my challenge to the left when they don't want, you know, guns in the school is, you know, would you put your money in a bank that doesn't use guns and vaults to secure your money? So why don't we, because the answer is no, you know, <laughs> the answer is no. None of these politicians that want guns out of school would take their money and just throw it in some mop closet somewhere and think that's good enough. But that's effectively how we secure our children. So to me, I'm saying you need to gun up. You need to probably harden some of these schools. To, to some extent, these schools need to be hardened. Uh, but certainly there needs to be a trained, trained firearm on staff somewhere. You know, that's it. I mean, we need to treat our children at a minimum as well as we treat our money in a bank. I mean, you start looking, you know, Jay, you start looking at these school shootings and, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that these cowards go out there and pick these schools and, and, and kill these children and young people. It's just, it's just, to me, it's absolutely disgusting. But on the flip side, you know, the mindset of not having an armed teacher or an armed individual in the school is also stupidity in my book. I think that, like you said, I mean, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is having a gun yourself. You know, we can't play the, you know, the rabbit chasing the good guy or rabbit chasing the bad guy game here because in reality, that person with a gun is going to win out nine times or even 99% of the time, right? I mean, oh, sure. the reality is, again, that a teacher, and there's whole lockdown and and that's another whole different subject matter there but as far as you know the way that teachers are taught to lock down the the students in an area you know i'm not a big believer in that i mean i did a study going back a few years ago and you look at in israel i mean they're pretty prepared man these classes all interlink there's usually stairs that drop down into uh into a secure uh floor and box these children in truly, I mean, against gunfire, not just hiding them under a bullshit desk. Well, I, well while that's functional, I, I do believe that, you know, from a liberty standpoint, we do need to consider, you know, what does this mean from the standpoint of you know, freedom to move, you know, there, there's some freedom issues there when it comes to hardening. You know, nobody wants to live in the iconic police state and, 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 and nobody wants to say, so there's a relevance to that conversation. I mean, in that who, who the hell wants to bunker up nationwide, but the reality of it is some things need to be adjusted. You know, it doesn't feel free to have to bunker up, but I look back at it like, uh, do you remember when the Chechnyans uh, stormed a school somewhere? I don't remember where it was in Russia, but they basically had the suicide bombers hooked up on a dead man switch. Oh, yeah. Well, um, then the they name. stormed the theater. Yes, yeah. I remember that. Yep, yep. But, but, the, but you know, <clears throat> it, it, terrorist organizations in general understand that schools are just powerfully psychologically damaging. So these sick individuals, when they go out there, when it's time for them to inflict the maximum amount of pain that they can inflict, they, they go to these schools because not only are they going to rack up, you know, uh, casualties, psychologically, the impact of, of attacking everybody's children has a profound effect. So, so for, for two reasons, they go in there. One, maximum damage. Two, it's a soft target. It's a, it's a freebie. It's a freebie. No matter how you try to quantify it, it's a, it's a target-rich environment. Sure. I mean, you, know. you go you go back to Beslam and, uh, you know, you start saying, hey, did we learn from that school shooting? And uh, at the beginning stages, you know, there was a couple of books written about it. But I could tell you from as a law enforcement officer he, in this country, not much was being done because we felt at that time, hey, this is not going to happen in our country until shit started happening. Yeah. And, uh, you know. It's a challenge for the politicians to to look to other countries for, you know, examples of what goes well and what goes wrong. You know, we do it all the time. It's like anytime, let's say, a socialist program in Europe does poorly, we love to point that example out. But both sides do it. So it gets kind of hard to pick and choose the examples our country wants to follow. But, you know, these things have happened globally. You know, the we got to start following the experience of some of our leaders and our law enforcement and military guys who are who have been saying this entire time. This is going to happen here. Yeah, I'm, it's I'm only a you. matter of time before it can happen here. Um, but it's not a politically fa favorable, you know, thing to say. It's it's not. 
Nobody likes to admit it, but, you know, there's bad people out there. I'm with you, brother. So let's talk a little bit about your mindset and how you use your mindset pretty much every day of your life. I mean, the fact that, you know, you made it into the special forces, uh, you did, you know, over 20 years in the military, you come out into a world that is a little bit different than being, uh, you know, living in the military and you're out here now uh, and you know, I want to know how you, first of all, how you transitioned over, you know, that mindset and how you applied it, you know, to your daily life. You know, do you have some daily ritual where you get up in the morning and you follow a routine? Uh, lately, yes. I mean, in general, when I was living on a gun range, not so much because I could just go whenever I wanted to do to do whatever I wanted to work on. But nowadays, yeah, I've had to get into a ritual. But I didn't transition out of the military. I think that's I think that's that that phrase isn't isn't as accurate as it as it needs to be because when we say transition, most veterans, myself included, think, well, I'm just going to go get a new job and start a new nine to five schedule, and after a year or two, this would be my new normal, and that's not really what it's like. I mean, for me, uh, I, I use this example all the time. It's like I've seen the man behind the curtain. I know the wizard's not real. And, and, and in this context, I know violence is a very real thing. Um, I'm under no illusion that people can be violent. So when I go back out to the land of Oz, so to speak, who all still believe in the wizard, they're all caught up in the, in the, the fiction of it all. Um, that, that's the hard part. That's the hard part is sometimes you lie to yourself. Sometimes you're going along to get along. But you know deep down inside that there's monsters out there and you act accordingly. And and that's great that that's a great point, Jay, because a lot of times I've found I'm also a tactical trainer and and, uh, and been doing it for a while. And what I found even teaching some of the military guys is kind of they transition out into this world and it's almost like they're trying to blend with everybody else here now. And it's a little bit more difficult to explain that, look, the real world, there are still bad people in this land that we live in here. It might not be the battlefield, okay? It might not be the sandbox, but, you know, the real world that we live in here, unfortunately, and, and we see this day in and day out, where people don't believe that there's evil. They don't believe that there's violence in the street. Well, I'll tell you right now, right off the bat, they're bad people, they're crazy people that want to do you harm out there. And if you're stupid enough to think otherwise, okay, you're going to be the one that's laying out there dead, bleeding, or your family in front of your face dead and bleeding. And what you're saying here is so huge because the fact is that, you know, coming from a world where you know that there's violence and everybody understands that there's violence, to then coming into another world where most people have no fucking clue what you've been through or what you've seen, and they believe that there is that fairy tale. They believe that there is that fairy tale end of the rainbow. You know, so that must have been a tremendous challenge for you. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to look at it, and, and I hate to use these terms because it feels like you're minimizing or you're patronizing some of the folks. You got to almost look at it, you know, the civilian pop from a military standpoint, almost like children. It's like they just don't understand the risk that's involved. And, you know, there's, there's problems with that. Uh, I think it lends the nation to be too quick to go into war. It's, you know, they just dismiss what it is that we're doing over there. Uh, you know, we like to look at the, the war from the standpoint of Instagram and the glory and the cool happy snaps. But the truth is, it's dirty business. It's a real dirty business. We're really over there shooting at people <laughs> and blowing stuff up. We're really doing that stuff. And uh, I, I think our, our, you know, just our general kind of disconnect from the reality of violence in the world, you know, just it seems like you know, maybe they ignore those consequences a little bit, but guys like us, we come home, uh, and I'm not saying I'm the baddest warrior on the planet. I'm certainly not, but you know, I, I've seen enough and done enough where, you know, I, I realize it's not a matter of good and evil. It's a matter of circumstances and that what you've in the past have considered to be good people. If you just change their ecosystems, if you just tweak 
the circumstances of their life, those people that were previously considered good could turn violent because that's what it's going to take to to maintain their own. I mean, I know that. So I don't think that uh, the problem is as simple as, you know, there's there's bad guys out there. I, I think I mean, and there certainly are. But I think at the root of it all, uh, I believe that good people can be violent if that's what it takes to defend their own, defend their family, and, and put food on the table. Yeah, so we're talking so that about, in itself is a scary specter. Yeah, so we're talking about switching that hat and applying that violence of action, right? When when the shit hits the fan and turning into, like you said, you know, if you got to turn into being the bad guy. Um, absolutely. Or when you're pushed to a limit, we see this shit all the time, man. We, we see this, you know, where people, for whatever reason, they have something that, that screws their head up in life and all of a sudden they become someone completely different. You know, I am, I'm with you a hundred percent. So let's talk a little bit about what your take is on violence of action and how important it is for any good warrior, any warrior-minded individual to carry that in their tool bag, to be able to to turn that switch from being a, a nice, you know, peaceful individual to fucking being spot on and going out there and, and bringing your game face. Well, violence to action to me is how we're trying to qualify what it means to be a warrior. I mean, when I, I, I answer a lot of Q&A uh, on the Instagram. So, or at least I try to. I mean, I'm not that good at it. But I try to answer a lot of Q&A <laughs> that comes in. And what I see is a lot of folks are trying to war game and calculate, you know, step by step the best solution to a problem. And it's basically armchair quarterbacking. And when I say stuff like violence of action, what I mean is when I come in the room, I can come up with a thousand different algorithms to, to, to solve the firing solution that's in front of me. But at the end of the day, when I get in there, I don't know the answers. I haven't been spoof fed the, the, you know, what the scenario is going to be. When I get in there, I got to switch gears and I got to become that warrior, that fighter. And I'm coming in there, mano a mano, looking at him in the eye when you pull the trigger and you got to get in that mindset. That's what violence of action is. I don't have the answer, so I'm going to battle my way through this scenario. I'm going to become the warrior and swing the battle axe, and that's how I'm going to clear this room. How do you develop that mindset? Because obviously, I mean, violence of action is clearly a mindset. It's that internal fortitude. It's that, it's that dynamic change like we're talking about. How can someone develop that? Outside of, say, you know, Training, obviously, it's very, very important, but from a mindset perspective. Well, it's, it's all about, you know, being immersed in the environment that, you know, you're in. So for the military folks, you know, we're immersed in daily, you know, things that are intended to desensitize us from the violence that we're having to do. We're, we're, we're faced with daily obstacles and challenges for us to overcome that instill that that competitive warrior nature in what we do. And that's a real challenging thing for civilians to capture. And that's usually why you see, and there's plenty of civilians out there who are putting up the good fight, you know, they're they're, they're switched on, their mind's in the right place, they're not former law enforcement, they're not former military, they're just good people looking to be their own 911. And one of the ways I've seen that these guys kind of achieve that status is they get immersed into a community that, that sponsors and supports that. They're surrounded by peers who tell them, hey, it is okay to, to want to manage the violence in, you know, that potentially could be in your life. That's a good thing. And uh, that community network, that infrastructure of like-minded peers kind of helps propel that competitive type A personality because if you're at home – trying to get to the warrior mindset by your, it's not TV. You, you know, you can't just put a montage together and be swinging a ninja sword and all of a sudden you're a warrior. Um, there has to be some institutional knowledge. You have to learn the morals, the, the moral and ethical values that come along with the warrior code. And it takes other warriors to kind of pass that along. It's controlled violence. So very cool. Civilians can do it, but they have to be immersed. They have to make this part of their life. You don't just pick up a gun with the ability to, to kill people and then, all right, cool, I did my eight-hour CCW class, I'm done. It, it's not that simple. You, you have to become an extension of the weapon. How? Uh, tell me about discipline. All right. How important do you feel discipline is in life? It's it's critically important. I mean, that's so the area that I've been weak on when when my life has not gone according to schedule, 
and every time if I go back and just assess it, it's because I lost my daily discipline. And it wasn't until I got the discipline back into my life where I started to get back on track. You know, when I see people come in and they're not fit, but they're in a duty position, the first thing I think is this person doesn't have the daily discipline to, to turn his body into the weapon that it needs to be in order to save somebody's life. That's what I see. So if Amen to that, man. Amen. If you don't have the discipline to hit the gym, I'm not saying you got to be Hercules. I'm just saying you have. I have to see uh, through your daily discipline, through your pattern of life, that you're taking this matter of life and death serious, and your fitness is is, is a good indicator of that. And because by extension, I know marksmanship is a perishable skill. I know it is. If you don't have the discipline to go to the gym, then I'm just going to assume that you don't have the discipline to do you know dry fire every day and go to the range as much as possible. These that's what discipline is. It's mastering those skills, and it takes a little bit of medicine every day. You know, not one big blowout session on the weekend, and then you're good for six months, but, you know, 10 to 15 minutes committing to investing in yourself and, and being a better person than you were the day before. That's what it takes to move forward. That's the difference between NASCAR and Bush League. Everybody wants to be in SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force, but nobody wants to dry fire. A hundred percent. Now let's talk a little bit about investing in yourself. That That is an area that most people, especially most civilians, have lack big time. You know, being able to invest in, the, in themselves. They think that by, you know, just going to YouTube and watching videos or reading a book and they lack that, you know, that element of taking action, right? You know, what's your take on investing in yourself? I'm sure you have hundreds, maybe thousands of hours uh, that the government gave you, you know, training. So talk to me about that. So it, I try to, when, when I'm talking to a civilian who does not do this for a living, I, I try to equate it to like, you know, having a savings account or a life insurance policy. I mean, day to day, you don't particularly need your savings account or need your life insurance policy. It's there just in case. And you have these things so that you feel better in the event that an emergency goes down, an unplanned emergency goes down, down the road. Well, all I'm asking folks to do is take that same logic and apply it into to it, diversify. Apply that same savings and insurance logic to a couple other mm, skill sets right. in your life and for the same reasons, invest in them. When you, when you put a little bit of your time and a little bit of your money you know, into a training session, that's an investment. There's a commitment that comes in there because if all you're willing to do is the easy stuff the, and, and go for the low-hanging fruit, at best, you know, you're, you're, you're limiting your ability, you're, you're, built, you're limiting your development. Investing in yourself allows you to become the, the, the best concealed carrier that you can be. Uh, the, the best resilient citizen you can be because there's a lot of factors that go into a gunfight and a battle that I think a lot of these CCW guys just, you know, because they're only superficially exposed to the, to the venue, they just don't consider. Like if you discharge your fire, let's say you shoot somebody in self-defense with a CCW, you're getting arrested. Sure. You know, yep. they're not going to be jerks about it, yep. but you're, you're going to jail until this gets sorted out. No so, you know, little things that you kind of pick up along the way uh, by getting immersed in the environment. You start to answer the what ifs. You start to learn that the subsecond draw that's all over Instagram, it's nothing more than a parlor trick. It's a parlor trick because the gunfight starts before the beep. Yep. It starts before the, the buzzer goes off. 100%. Uh, you'll start to learn your situational awareness. You'll start to say, hey, I don't think there's anything wrong with that guy, but I don't like the fact that he's between me and the door, so let me do something about that. Yes, agreed, um, agreed. Anyway, so invest in yourself. Develop some depth. You develop the depth and the scope and knowledge you need to be as safe as possible, and, uh, and it mitigates liability in the end. You know, you're not just going to go blast and that's the end of it and everybody's going to take your side, right? It's you need to back happen. that up with some doesn't happen as easy as that, no doubt. What has been, in your life, one of the most challenging situations that you have been in, and how have you overcome it? Man, that's a tough one. Well, I mean, I don't usually talk about this publicly, but, you know, in this case, probably the most challenging thing I had to do in my life was, at one point, I had to get sober. I wasn't able to find the right work-life balance. Uh, I, I, I let my life get away. I lost that daily discipline that we, we were talking about earlier. 
And I had to somehow simultaneously reestablish me in my personal life and then figure out what I'm going to do with my career balance, you know, kind of at the same time. It was uh, was a real chore because everything changed after that. Everything changed. The personal and professional uh, perception changed. And I, I had to learn how to live my life new again. And that's to date, over combat, over, over selection and getting into this stuff is rebranding my life and getting back on track stands, stands out as, as one of my biggest accomplishments so far. Wow, that's awesome. A me thing. A me thing. It wasn't even yeah. an army thing. It was a me thing. I mean, and, and, uh, you know, it's not uncommon. I mean, you know, going down a road where you, you know, you just lose, you know, you kind of rail off, you derail yourself, you know, but what makes a warrior man in my book, all right, is getting back. All right. Getting back on that rail, start walking again in that warrior's path and being able to overcome your challenges because none of us are perfect. All right. I know that I'm far from perfect and there, there are a tremendous amount of obstacles and challenges that I have uh, definitely had to overcome. And that's the most beautiful part about being a warrior. You know, there are times in life where you might get derailed, but it's how quickly do you come back and how strongly, right, do you come back? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of times, you know, look, I've had to have my pity parties along the way. Sit around, feel sorry for myself. But at the end of the day, I kept going back to what's always been successful to me. If I get punched in the face and knocked on my ass, I got to get up and I got to come back swinging harder than I did before. That, that's, that's key ingredient number one. Key ingredient number two is every time I've invested and in taken a risk on myself, uh, I've, I've managed to achieve what it is I wanted to achieve. I, mean, I took action in my life and actually put the packets in to go to selection. I actually trained up to go do these things. I actually put the time in and, and made them happen. I didn't wait for them to come. And when I put those two things together, you know, I can overcome failure. I can overcome failure. And that's yeah, where that's I want to be. That's how I'm resilient. Tell me where you think society's mindset is nowadays from what you're seeing out there. I mean, we can uh, we can sit here and talk about, you know, these situations that you're just seeing on TV all the time where you have people, you know, congregating in these environments that they want to protest. And you just look at these young individuals and you just ask yourself, you know, what planet did they come from? I mean, I know at least, look, you know, I'm in my mid forties and I don't remember growing up in a situation where the our society's mindset had just turned so dynamically upside down and i don't know where it's coming from i don't have the answer well to me my my biggest critique of american society you know to some extent as an outsider you know being in the military we we very much so kind of are outsiders my critique is uh most folks i when I listen to them complain about their lot in life or the, or the current political environment, what I hear time and time again isn't that they don't have good ideas. It's that they, their ideas don't revolve around them taking charge and taking ownership of their destiny. It always revolves around somebody else either providing it or somebody else changing the circumstances. Like, no, absolutely not. we got to get back to that roll-your-sleeves-up mentality and if there's a problem in my neighborhood or a problem in my home or a problem at work, it's, it's, we got to get back to leading by example. You know, if, if you want to change in the world around you, you got to be the change you want to see on other people. I'm tired of seeing political solutions to, to personal and technical stuff. Like, what, what's a law and the politicians going to do? I mean, honestly, what are they going to do? Uh, you need to learn how to shoot. You need to learn first aid. You need to have a savings account. You got to have these things. You, you got to have food in your pantry for, for a rainy day, and instead, we don't do that. We say, well, Uncle Sugar and FEMA are going to come and take care of me if the hurricane's going to hit. So there's no need for me to buy water, despite the fact I've been to three hurricanes in the state of Florida. That's, that's what we do. Same thing out in California. You know, um, <laughs> All I see, if you, if you watch TV out here in California, it's just political ad after political ad after political ad where these people – are chasing solutions outside of their sphere of control. 
It's Instead crazy. of focusing on themselves and what they can do, they, they can find the energy to tell you how you're doing it wrong. And that part, that's my critique. That's what we got to stop doing. Boom. There you have it, man. Absolutely. 100% with you on that. Hey, what is your definition of a modern day warrior? To me, a modern day warrior uh, lives by their own higher moral and ethical standard. They not only commit their lives to investing in themselves, but the return on that investment is in the form of how well they serve others, um, either their family or their community or you know the meek, the weak. That's what a warrior does. They use their strength to build other people up instead of tearing other people down. Love it. Good stuff, man. All right, Jay, where can our listeners follow you? And uh, if you can give the uh, the website that you're part of and all that good stuff and maybe your Instagram ID. Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Fusion Tactical or my personal page at 18 underscore Zulu. Although I'll admit on my Instagram page, it's mostly cool commando pics. Um, <laughs> but you can also go to our website, which we'll be overhauling real soon. It's FusionTacticalUSA.com. We'll have a blog coming out soon. Um, I'm hoping by October, November, or it is October, by November, um, you guys will hear a lot more out of me out on the Fusion Tactical platforms. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Listen, some great stuff. I love the fact, man, that you dove, you know, you dove deep and you opened up and uh, you talked about overcoming challenges. And that to me is huge, man. In my book, you're a warrior minded dude, no doubt about it, man. Thank you for being on and we would love to have you back on soon. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Take care of yourself. Boom, there you have it. What a great conversation with Jay. This guy is a warrior in my book, no doubt about it. I hope that you wrote down some of these key messages that he was spitting out, man. I got to tell you that some very, very strong, very powerful messages were coming out through the airwaves here. All right, listen. Of course, conclaveofwarriors.com. Go there, grab your tickets. I want to shake your hand and see you in Miami. Until next time, your life may be challenging and full of dangers, but never retreat. Your last battle may be your greatest victory.